This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Next Friday's debut day for President Biden's full budget request. That request will fill in the details of the budget outline the White House released April 9th. GovExec reports the budget release will come without a confirmed director of the Office of Management and Budget. The Technology Modernization Fund Board will review almost 100 project proposals starting June 2nd. Federal Chief Information Officer Claire Martirana calls the proposal she's seeing, quote, pretty robust. FedScoop reports the board will focus on cybersecurity projects because of recent breaches and the White House executive order. Agencies can restart labor management relation forums, according to a new, a new memo from the Office of Personnel Management. Acting Director Kathy McGettigan writes the Trump administration executive order that told agencies to get rid of the forums is, quote, under review now. FCW reports the new guidance allows agencies to restart the forums, but doesn't require them to. The Department of Justice will stand up an interagency fraud enforcement task force to collaborate with agencies on investigation and fraud through COVID-19 relief from the American Rescue Plan. That's in addition to the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee and the Office of the Special Inspector General for Pandemic Recovery. Robert Shea's National Managing Principal for Public Policy at Grant Thornton. He's former Associate Director at the Office of Management and Budget, and he's a NAPA fellow. Robert, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I also understand you were a commissioner on the Commission on Evidence-Based Policymaking. I imagine in that role, you have a concern about all of the data that's going to be coming into all of these pandemic oversight offices and potentially going a bunch of different directions, not necessarily all in the same direction. What do you make of the creation of this new Justice Department task force? Well, I think it adds to the oversight that the government's already created for pandemic oversight. Um, the, you know, con it's important to remember oversight flows from Congress. Uh, and Congress has set up a number of entities to ensure that money is not wasted um, and the taxpayers' interests are protected. They've got House and Senate over oversight committees and a government and accountability office. Uh, those are congressional entities, but they've also set up inspectors general, a huge ecosystem uh, of audit and auditors and investigators across the government um, who, all of whom are adding to oversight of the pandemic. But Congress, in its wisdom, knowing it was passing trillion-dollar bill after trillion-dollar bill, set up additional entities. They set up uh, its own select subcommittee on the coronavirus crisis. The CARES Act established a special congressional commission on, on uh, the pandemic. And then they set up the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, the PAC. The PRAC. Now, the PRAC is supposed to combine its resources with other IGs to minimize waste, fraud, and abuse in pandemic uh, response programs. Um, the Treasury Inspectors General for Pandemic Recovery is another entity uh, uh, created by the CARES Act. And now the Biden administration has created a, a pandemic relief czar, and now this special justice fraud unit. Um, it, it's just another addition to 
um, an enormous panoply of pandemic oversight. How does one tell who has jurisdiction over what, or is that still unclear at this point, Robert? I think in answer to the question, who's in charge, I think everyone. Um, and it'll be incumbent on this new uh, uh, pandemic relief czar to bring all of this together. You've seen a number of squabbles about jurisdiction. The Special Inspector General for Pandemic Recovery at Treasury tried to articulate his point of view of jurisdictional um, boundaries, and that ran afoul of both the PRAC and the Government Accountability Office. Um, I've not seen such firm language out of GAO. As you know, they tend to uh, express their views softly, um, but in this case, they were very firm to the Treasury Inspector General not to inform it where it's jurisdictional boundaries lay is so i don't think i don't think it's not yet clear who's in charge congress is in charge but they've set up a number of dueling entities that i think uh sets itself up for, for some potential um overlap duplication inefficiency like i say this new pandemic recoveries are could possibly bring order to the chaos. It sounds to me, though, like the challenge here potentially is philosophical rather than logistical, Robert. And the reason I say that is you said a moment ago, oversight flows from Congress. I imagine at least some of the, uh, the overseers that are located in the executive branch and report up the chain in the executive branch would beg to argue with you on that subject. Now, I'm not here to say which one, who's right and who's wrong, but that difference of opinion seems to be the crux of the jurisdictional issue. Is that a fair observation on my part, or did I miss something? No, I, I mean, I, I think you there, there's wisdom in what you say. Um, the inspector general has this dual reporting requirement. Uh, they report both to Congress and the agency head, and therefore they're set up as quasi-independent entities. There's the old saying: if you if you if you if you know one one IG, you know one IG. They're all unique and have different views about uh, where they ought to focus their energies. Um, but you know, exercising that collaboration muscle is going to be really important if we're going to take the limited oversight dollars we have and focus them where they need to go to really minimize the waste of taxpayer dollars. All right, we just have a couple of minutes left, Robert. I appreciate the comment that there is wisdom in what I said. You didn't say how much, so I'm not gonna get overly <laughs> excited about that. Um, one of the things in President Biden's uh, executive order in, in his memo is the launching of an initiative on identity theft prevention and public benefits. That oversight czar that you mentioned will run that in coordination with the Office of Management and Budget. What would you like to see come out of that and what where does that fit in the mosaic of everything that you laid out that, that the executive branch and Congress is putting together here? Well, I think the creation of the unit is recognition that a lot of programs and people have been taken advantage of as a result of a lot of new programs with lots of money being stood up almost overnight. Um, you know, the, the, the government has all the data it needs to verify one's identity, but Often those uh, data sources are in disparate places across the government. And OMB is a good entity to reduce barriers to sharing that data, bringing it together to improve identity verification, which is uh, uh, required for eligibility verification and to ensure that we're getting money to the right people. Robert Shea, thanks very much as always. Thanks for having me, Francis.
You can find a link to President Biden's message on oversight of the pandemic money at govmatters.tv slash resources. Coming next, who needs shots and who doesn't to come back to the office? Straight ahead on Government Matters, sinking the rules for employees and contractors. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. Most federal employees that are fully vaccinated can take their masks off when they come back to the office, according to guidance from the Office of Personnel Management. Each agency and each location, though, may have different rules, and the rules for contractors are less clear on masks and vaccines. Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. Stephanie, thanks very much for coming on. How important is consistency in the guidance for vaccinated contractors about all of these things, especially about the vaccinations? And what do we know about what the government can and can't ask or make contractors do? Thanks so much for that question. As you know, or as you can imagine, this is a huge issue for the contracting community, not only in Washington, D.C., but elsewhere around the country and around the world. Consistency is key, and that is something that we've not seen a lot out of the federal government, whether it's the civilian agencies or the defense agencies. We've been getting mixed messages, and that's a real problem for contractors. How are the messages mixed, and where is consistency important? Is it is the consistency that you're referring to that in one particular location, employees and contractors have the same policies applied to them? Or is it important that within a particular agency, the policies are consistent, or what Maybe all of that or maybe something else, Stephanie? No, that's a great set of questions. Consistency is key across the board, particularly where contractors are working side by side in the same physical workspace as government employees, whether they're civil servants, foreign service officers, or military personnel. And there hasn't been consistent guidance from program managers on all the way up to the highest levels of the departments where it comes to what is the requirement for contractors who work side by side with folks who are in um, government service. Outside of that, it's unclear whether access to um, bases or facilities, government buildings might depend on vaccination status. And so consistency is important across the board. Um, we may understand there, there could be a different set of rules for folks who are working on site alongside civil servants versus the folks who are working either telecommuting or working remotely. So regarding vaccination, uh, different components of the government have said we're not going to require uh, vaccinations for people to come back to the office. And in fact, the last policy that I saw indicated that agencies, managers couldn't even ask their employees what their vaccination status was. What are you what do you understand from your members uh, uh, that they're hearing about how those rules or those policies apply to contractors? And what can the government do and not do about asking those same questions um, of, of the people that work for their contractors? So it's come to our attention in the last two weeks or so that there are um, military commands and others who are asking contracting officer representatives, the folks who are responsible for maintaining, um, making sure contractors are fulfilling requirements and that kind of thing. Um, they've asked their folks to pulse the contractors who are coming on base or onto the facilities to see if they can check on vaccination status, but it's not a requirement to report that. And I think that hesitation comes because there is no federal vaccination mandate. Um, and I understand there is tremendous hesitance within the highest levels of government because it would be precedent setting. You may know that um, vaccine requirements are usually state or local government led. 
And so you'll see that when folks are registering kids for kindergarten or, you know, college, um, there are state requirements for vaccinations in school settings. There are um, healthcare personnel who are required to be vaccinated or uh, patients in long-term healthcare facilities. Um, but generally speaking, the federal government has not mandated vaccine, vaccines, just provided guidelines. And it's up to the states and local governments to figure out whether they want to mandate it or not. So there's a lot of churn in this conversation. There's a lot of inconsistency, as you can imagine, 50 states, several territories, and numerous uh, local governments looking at this and going, what do we do? I know it wouldn't be entirely clarifying, Stephanie, but would, at least, would it at least be helpful for the government to say, whatever we're applying to the federal workforce, we're also going to apply to the contracting workforce? Would that at least be a step toward the clarification and the consistency that you think is important? It, it could. I would, again, highlight the difference between contractors who work alongside in government facilities, alongside government personnel, versus those who might be able to do their services, conduct their services from, from their own homes. And should those people have to be vaccinated? That's a question about um, exposure and risk. Um, and so I, I think it would be even-handed to require the same of contractors as it would of federal civil servants, but it may not actually apply. Do we know anything about vaccination percentages among the contracting workforce? We have some sense for sure about what's happening in the military. Each of the services has released those numbers. Um, do we know anything about what the contracting workforce has done? So as, as part of the Professional Services Council, our, our government contracting community is the services um, workforce. And some of them do work remotely um, and have not you know, chosen to be vaccinated, or they have, um, but they have not necessarily reported it. We do know that about 60% of the U.S. population, that's 18 or over, have received the vaccine. And I suspect that the uh, contracting workforce is probably, um, you know, around the same rate as the government or the general population of the U.S. We have a little bit less than a minute left. What will you watch as all this moves forward? Is it just looking for that consistency or is there something else you'll pay attention to, Stephanie? So as I mentioned, there is a, a real hesitance to have a federal mandate because it would be precedent setting. Um, I, I will be listening to the chatter of the different federal agencies to see what they come out with. Um, obviously, there, there are some proponents, some in the healthcare industry who, who are going to be vaccinated, others who are in the tech industry who, again, working um, remotely or, in, in, you know, some have even moved um, out of the state and into a different state and they continue to do their job 100% um, meeting requirements. I will be looking for um, some level at the highest levels of each department and agency to come out with their own requirement um, or guidelines. Um, and that might be the, the way to approach this. I will be also working with member companies and, and the government contract community writ large to find out what are they requiring on their own um, and, and laying that against what the government might be requiring or setting guidelines for. Stephanie Castro, thanks very much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Coming next, a small business cyber shortage of money and people power. Straight ahead on Government Matters, CISA's next job could be to help small businesses help themselves. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back.
The Defense Department and General Services Administration will require businesses of all sizes, even small businesses, to comply with the Pentagon's Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program soon. The Pentagon says small businesses are particularly vulnerable to cyber attacks from all over. Kirsten Todd is Managing Director of the Cyber Readiness Institute. She's former Executive Director of the Commission on Enhancing National Cybersecurity under President Obama. She's writing about small business cyber problems in the Hill newspaper. Kirsten, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What are the biggest cyber threats that small and medium businesses are up against, especially those that try to do business with the federal government? Well, thanks so much. It's great to be with you. Uh, the answer really is all of the cyber threats. Um, because small businesses are typically under-resourced. Uh, they don't have the capabilities, the extension to be aware of what the threats are, and more importantly, uh, how to combat them. And even when they do, again, they're financially constrained. And so we have to be looking differently at how to help these small businesses, which are critical components of our global supply chains. And that's really the big issue. We live in such an interdependent world right now. We saw it with solar winds and we've seen it across uh, the Microsoft Exchange breach. Small businesses, when they're impacted, it impacts the larger global economy. Um, you point out, I think, well in this piece that what a small business really means, and you quote the CEO of Bank of America, Brian Moynihan, um, 80% of America's businesses have fewer than 10 employees, 95% have fewer than 100. So these businesses really are small in the context of America and not small in the context of, say, the industrial base that serves the federal government. You write about five steps that the government can take today that will have an impact on helping these businesses. And the first one you write about is creating a small and medium-sized business cybersecurity center uh, to live at CISA. What would that look like and what would that do? So this is really building off of the fantastic work that CISA has done with small businesses and being able to identify the resources that small businesses need, uh, but really looking at having a repository of information for small businesses. Uh, at the Cyber Readiness Institute, we focus on human behavior, but there are a lot of other nonprofit efforts that are working to help small businesses. And so being able to identify one place in government where small businesses can go when there's a big threat to know what they should be doing but importantly, what are the day-to-day -day, uh, issues thing and things that they need to be working on? Uh, and I think with the plus up in the budget uh, that uh, makes CISA an almost $1 billion agency, it makes sense to put these resources there. Uh, certainly they would connect to the resources at the Small Business Administration and other uh, entities within government. But having that one-stop shop at the agency that is really looking at cybersecurity across critical infrastructure is so important. Uh, and we've seen some great work recently this year uh, on the part of CISA, specifically with ransomware which is uh, the greatest threat to small businesses right now, as it is uh, really to every business, as we just saw with the Colonial Pipeline uh, event. The second item on your list is establishing cybersecurity incentives in the form of tax credits. I wish we had time to talk about all five of these. I don't. The third is setting cybersecurity standards. The fourth is launching national cyber squads. What would those squads do, Kirsten? So what we're looking at here is how do we help cultivate a workforce uh, that starts really in elementary school, middle school, high school, and college. And so we're taking graduates out of college that have knowledge in cybersecurity and that can then go intern with small businesses. And by having this type of effort, and we've seen other formats that are very similar, uh, being able to then uh, fund this internship program through the government, but it both facilitates a workforce. Uh, it helps us to help uh, students understand that they have the capabilities and the aptitudes to work in cyber. It's not just about science and math. 
uh, the importance of this interdisciplinary issue, looks at his, history, psychology, politics, et cetera, but then being able to then go into small businesses and help them with their cyber resources, because a lot of these small businesses don't have the financial wherewithal to hire a chief information security officer and IT manager. The last item on your list, Kirsten, is rolling out a national cyber readiness education campaign. What do we tell small business owners about the dangers, the risks of cybersecurity if they haven't already heard about SolarWinds and Colonial Pipeline and Microsoft Exchange? What, what do we say now to get them to do something different? Well, what we're looking at with this campaign is there's so many issues when it comes to cybersecurity, but what we know is one of the biggest issues is strong authentication. In other words, a password that can't get breached. So if we take an approach almost like a schoolhouse rock, if we go back to the 70s uh, approach to learning about uh, Congress and how the government works, but if we take an approach like that to just making the point about the importance and the significance of a strong password, we think we'll go a long way. Because if you look at all of the breaches that have happened, not just in recent memory, but really over the last decade, most of them, if not all, start with a compromised authentication. We saw it with SolarWinds, SolarWinds 123. We saw it with uh, the Equifax breach where the password was password. Uh, so it's really educating small businesses as well as all businesses on the importance of that, of a strong password. And the important piece there is that everybody can take play a role in making your business more resilient. I'm only smiling because you reminded me that the password was password and I'm thinking it's 2021 people. I mean, come on. Um, we have about a minute left. What would you watch as, as the response that the government makes to these kinds of challenges for small and medium-sized businesses moves forward, Kirsten? Well, I think we saw a tremendous effort on the part of the Biden administration last week with the release of the executive order. And we know that small businesses are absolutely on their radar screen. And so we just have to pay close attention to making sure that small businesses are very much a part of the conversation, but importantly, that they have access to the resources that help them become more cyber aware and more cyber ready. Kirsten, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate Thank your you. time very much. Thanks so much. Great to be with you. You can find a link to her piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. And don't forget, if you miss an episode of the show, it's on our website, too. You get a preview of every program when you sign up for a daily program guide. You just text GovMatters to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award 
on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract? GSA's got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. But GSA's been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's, what I want to, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, Stop, stop the presses, start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's, what's needed, uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today. We just have uh, 20 seconds left, Tony. You have, you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's critical. It's the right time. The technology is very, very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.